some time now I've had a secret wish. Someone would send me a love letter on a fish. For a fish and a love You're listening to KTOO News Juno. The following is a broadcast of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. The seven personal stories you are about to hear were told on December 13th at the Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was What's Cookin'? Live music by Julie Copens. Oh, I'd love to hear from you on one condition that when you pitch your woo, you'd pitch it on. I'd like to introduce our first speaker. So our first speaker tonight is Kelly Midgey Moore. Midgey is a Southern belle making her way in Alaska. She is a food writer blogger, and her column, Meals with Midgey, can be found in the Capital City Weekly. Midgey also owns Juno Food Tours, which gives her the opportunity to tell the stories of the amazing food scene in Alaska's capital city. Tonight, she will sh- share how her passion for food and writing, a- writing about it, how it got started. It all began with a cake. Please welcome Midgey. My name is Midgey. It is my nickname. A lot of people ask me how I got that name, and I actually got it from my biker brothers when I used to ride motorcycles. Um, I had a <clears throat> V-Star, 650 V-Star, and I was a pretty badass biker. I had the leathers, and I had all the cool stuff, the back patch and everything, and um, one of my uh, biker brothers said that I tend to walk a little taller when I wore my leathers, and so he started calling me Mijimoto, which became my long-term nickname, and I used it when I skated in roller derby and all of that, and then I, um, which is a whole other story, but I um, start, when I moved here about seven and a half years ago, I left an adult child back in Utah and one of my best friends with um, no recipes, and apparently that was my bad. They would constantly email me and text me, how do you make this, how do you make that? So I started a food blog just for kicks and grins for my family called Meals with Midgey. And through that, the capital city picked it up, and then I have been writing for them for over six years. So it's been a lot of fun. It's been a wonderful journey, and because of that, I also was able to start my company, Juno Food Tours. But I wanted to tell you how I did my very first blog, because writing about something that um, is very personal is kind of painful and joyful at the same time. So my first blog was about a cake, and it actually happened at Christmas. I am a Southern Belle, I grew up in the military, but my family and all my people are from North Carolina, and we lived the longest in Georgia, and that's where I say I'm from, because that's where we lived as a child, where I got to live the longest. And my parents are both from North Carolina, and all of their people. My grandmother, her name, her given name, her God-given Christian name was Pinky Rebecca. (laughs) I cannot make this stuff up. As a matter of fact, my grandma Pinky also had a sister named Aunt Hattie Mae, my Aunt Hattie Mae. She had a brother named Pledger. She had a sister named Bright. And my all-time favorite was my great aunt Flake. <laughs> I, now, my daughter Alex did her family tree. She did her dad's side and my, my side. Her dad's, her, his people were all from England. They had Reginald, they had Joffrey, they had Richard. And then we had Flake and Bright and Pinky. And true to form, those names really speak to their personalities. Now, when I was little, my grandma Pinky, uh, my cousin couldn't say her name, so she called her Minky. And to this day, we still refer to her as Grandma Minky, who has long gone to heaven, but her food stuck with me. 
30-something years ago, I was a young bride at the ripe old age of 18. I know, that's, again, another story. But I moved, I, I was married to a soldier, because I wanted to marry someone like my dad. Marry a GI, he could see the world. Go to Fairbanks, Alaska. <laughs> From Georgia. <laughs> Before Georgia, we lived in Hawaii. So I was like, yeah, I'll go to Fairbanks, this is awesome. So 18 years old, pack off, move to the big last frontier, live in a place where it's 70 below zero. I mean, I didn't know like animals could live in that, let alone people. So we moved there in June. It was awesome. Daylight, at 3 a.m., people are playing Frisbee. This is great. I can do this. This is awesome. September came. I didn't know that people could thrive in 40 feet of snow, but apparently they can. I have nothing but respect for people from Fairbanks. I think right now, I sort of feel like we're living there. It's a little chilly. So that Christmas, that first Christmas I was gone, I was so homesick. And I miss my mom and I miss my family's cooking so bad. Now in Georgia, we cook everything in salt pork. <laughs> well, y'all don't do that. Well, where I'm from, we don't call it salt pork. We call it fat back. Apparently, nobody else does that, because when I went to the commissary looking for fat back, they didn't have it, and I had to call my mom in tears, and she said, those Yankees, they call it salt pork. <laughs> so I did find that. But for Christmas, I called my mom, she sent me the money, and I got to go home. I flew from Fairbanks to Seattle, Seattle to Atlanta, Atlanta to Savannah, and then I drove for an hour from Savannah to Hinesville, Georgia, where my family lived. It just took a little while. But all that way, all I kept thinking about was my grandma Minky's coconut cake. This cake was the best and is still the best cake I've ever eaten in my life. It is white, it's fluffy, it's got coconut, it's gooey, it's just, it speaks Christmas to me. I only make it at Christmas and Easter for the two big holidays in my family. And all I kept thinking about was my grandma Minky was going to be there and I got coconut cake. So Minky asked me what I wanted for Christmas, and I said I wanted a coconut cake. Christmas dinner happens, all the food's laid out. We had the turkey, we had the ham, the potato salad, all the dressing, the whole deal. And over on the side, we, under this magic light, glowed the coconut cake. And I was like, y'all done? We're done, right? Let's get on. Come on, Dad, eat up, eat up. Cake, cake, cake. So everybody has fun. We're eating the whole meal. The whole family's having a great time. And it's finally time to serve dessert. And I'm just like, I want the first piece because I know once my dad gets a hold of it, I'm not going to get any. So mama cuts me the first piece of cake. I'm in happy place and everything. Afterwards, my grandma comes out with a second cake she baked just for me. Wow. Best grandma ever. My dad, now this was 30 years ago, long before 9-11. My daddy, he gets this big old brown satchel. And he wraps his cake up in tinfoil, in newspaper, looked like a bomb. He put it in this big satchel, and I carried that cake an hour's ride to Savannah, flew from Savannah to Atlanta, Atlanta to Seattle, Seattle to Fairbanks. Along the way, one of the flight attendants asked me, could she help me with my bag? And I was like, get away, it's my precious. Don't touch my cake. I mean, this cake was like everything I ever wanted. I get home, I store the cake in the fridge, and all I think about is I'm going to eat this whole cake all by myself. And I don't have to share it with anybody, my brothers, my dad, anyone. And then I realized in that moment that not sharing that cake would be a crime. One, it would give me a stomachache if I ate the whole thing. But also, wouldn't it be awesome to share this beautiful 
piece of Christmas with some of my friends I had made in Fairbanks. So I did. And I always tell people, food is memories. When you eat something this year at the holidays, remember where you had it. Remember what it means to you. Remember that bite of something. Because I promise you, this year I'll be eating coconut cake, and I'll be remembering my Grandma Minky, who made it for me, and I hauled it all the way to Fairbanks. Thank you. Our next speaker is Helen Edwards. Helen moved to Juneau in 1985. Her first, state, her first state job was in the dispatch office of the Alaska Marine Highway. Serving the employees of Alaska's waterways was a rich education into Southeast Alaska. After being too distracted to graduate from high school, Helen has received two business degrees from UAS. Her adult son lives in San Francisco and serves in the US Coast Guard. She's married to her sweetheart, Sean Edgars. Tonight's story is the $2,000 breakfast. In 1996, Helen was working on Admiralty Island in the office of Greens Creek Mine. She made too much money. Despite the demanding hours of Greens Creek, Helen made a poorly researched decision. She was soon the proud and petrified owner of a 10-bedroom boarding house. Please welcome Helen Edgars and the $2,000 breakfast. Greens Creek Mine. I'm living my dream. They are paying me to go whale watching every day. I'm making lots of money, and I'm not spending it. So I wind up with a nest egg. And I'm at the fax machine at Greens Creek, and there is a boarding house for sale. A boarding house. As I was rehearsing this talk, someone said, what's the difference between a boarding house and a hotel? A boarding house, the tenants don't have any money. So I had a nice down payment, and I bought this 10-bedroom boarding house. And my tenants were drunks and stumble bums, newly divorced men, and the occasional bright-eyed missionary. I had a very large mortgage and shaky income at best. But I was having a lot of fun. I'm living the dream. I'm still going whale watching. And then that job ends. And so now, how am I going to make this big mortgage? think about it for a little while. I can open a hotel. Near Glacier Valley School is where my building is. So I kick out the bums and the missionaries, and now I have no income. <laughs> but I have a little savings account. My dear son comes up from San Francisco. We paint every surface. We put in new carpeting, brand new beds, coffee pot for every room, dark curtains. My very first guest comes, Diane from Sitka. And I'm so excited, I'm gonna have this hotel. So she comes in and she gives me, I give her a good discount for an evaluation and she has a couple of wonderful suggestions. She likes the breakfast that I serve. And the guests are coming in spottily here and there. I'm not even close to making the mortgage and my heart is going, I might have made a very serious mistake. We're coming along here and I'm just, and then I get my first business guest. He's there for one whole month. So Carl comes in, and he's got his check, and he goes, how much do I make this check for? Now, me and Math, we're not real good friends. Um, so there's some numbers to multiply here, and I'm trying to do it in my head. And you move the nine, and the one, no, there's no nine. So I excuse myself, and I go down to my little office, and I'm holding my calculator, and I remember 
Back in third grade, Mrs. Dinwiddie said I could not go out to recess until I learned my sevens and eight tables. She goes outside, all the kids go outside, I'm sitting at my desk by myself. You can't make me learn those. So I get my little calculator, I go, ha ha to you, Mrs. Dinwiddie. So I enter $85 a night times 30 nights. Well, that can't be right. Eight five times three zero. That number's too big. I go trudging back to Carl, and he says, how much do I write this check for? <laughs> how much? Um. So he asks me again with a bite in his voice how much to make the check for. So I go and I look at Carl, and I see all the fears that I had, that I was a failure, I couldn't even multiply numbers, I was going to lose everything. I look at him, and I see those fears, and I just bundle them up, and I put them aside, and I said, Carl, you make that check for $2,550. He says, okay. I just made the mortgage and the light bill. I was just, oh my God, maybe I'm not going to lose everything. I go back to my office and I thought, only a few weeks ago, this room was renting for $500 a month if I was lucky. I'm going to make this guy a breakfast like he has never seen before. So I get up the next morning at 4 o'clock and I start my giant cinnamon rolls. The secret is a cake mix in the batter. And I parboil new potatoes, and I cool, and I dice them perfectly, half inch. I take my green onions, and I slice them perfectly on the diagonal. And I slice the double-smoked ham, and I toast the English muffins. And back in 1974, a little Mexican senora taught me how to make hollandaise sauce, real hollandaise sauce, egg yolks, Lemon juice, a little bit of zest. If it's a special occasion, a dash of turmeric. Two dashes of turmeric this morning. And a cube of ice-cold butter. Soon I have a silky, savory sauce I just want to eat with a spoon. As the hour approaches, I hand-squeeze orange juice, take out most of the pulp, but not all. And I plate all this food up, and Carl's had lots of coffee. He sits down at the table for 10. He's the only one there. And I put this food out. Now, Carl's a big guy. And he sees all this food, and he gets a big smile on his face. He rolls up his sleeves, and he sits down, and he dives into this breakfast. And he seems like a pretty happy guy. And then about halfway through the meal, I sense something's amiss. And I go, God, did I do something? Did I cook it wrong? I know it's a good meal. I try to not hover, and I totally fail. Finally, he's done. He stands up and he pats his belly. He goes, that meal was really good. Well, I knew that. He said, but I can't eat like that every day. From now on, I just want cornflakes. <laughs> well, I can do cornflakes. As we went on, I gained some confidence, and the Cinnamon Inn actually did do very well, and I kept it going for several years until I incurred a Life, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. <laughs> Till I incurred a very serious illness. And my son that I had mentioned came up and helped me take care of that. And at our, we had our first Christmas dinner after that illness, and I wrote a story about that. 
And Chicken Soup for the Soul published this story called This Side of Heaven, and I have a few copies in the back. And you guys have just been amazing. Thank you so much. Our third speaker for this evening is Chris Knight. Chris Knight, rocket scientist, random giver of hugs, flag wearer, beehive owner, deer whisperer, Trump believer, fundamentalist, rock climber, eggplant lover, magician, skydiver, knitter, cold coffee drinker, and Nicolas Cage fan. All of which do not make up Chris Knight. When he's not fishing, he is teaching, and when he is not teaching or coaching, he likes to ride bikes with his friend Aaron. Please welcome Chris. An offer you can't refuse. I just returned back from Latin America with my girlfriend at the time, uh, Lisa. And of course, after a long period of travel, you want to go meet the parents. We were in New York. Uh, her parents were from Long Island. Went to Long Island, staying in the house. Uh, was there maybe a day or so before it was time to go meet the rest of the family. Went over to Aunt, I think it was Aunt Angie's house, about 10.30 in the morning. Uh, showed up and it's, oh, how you doing? Oh, where, where are you from, Alaska? Uh, and of course, have some fresh bagels. And uh, it's not any, you know, it's not just any bagel, it's a New York bagel and they're everything bagels. Uh, and if you've been in New York, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So we sit down and we're eating bagels and we're drinking coffee. And, uh, you know, we're talking about penguins and igloos and polar bears. And of course, I'm giving them the full story like, no, we, I don't live where we have penguins and there are polar bears way far away. So we're eating and then uh, she's like, oh, I have some fresh mozzarella. And, but they don't say mozzarella, they say mozzarella. It comes a little bowl of liquid and they pull out the mozzarella and you're, you're slicing it up and you're, you're eating the mozzarella and you're having the bagels and you're like, oh my God, you know, I love New York. And then the door not, you hear the door open and close and this guy walks in, he's kind of a heavyset guy and he suddenly starts yelling and talking and it's Uncle Happy. <laughs> and Uncle Happy is, I don't know what his real name is, but they call him Uncle Happy or Haps. And he's like, hey, you're the kid from Alaska. Ah, ah, you got polar bears. And next thing you know, we're having the whole conversation about polar bears and penguins and igloos. And, uh, you know, as we're finishing off the lots of the mozzarella, he's like, ah, let's get some pizzas. You know, and if you've had a New York pizza, suddenly the pizzas show up and it's the sauces, but they don't have toppings. They have cheese. But it's a, each one's a little bit different. And you start eating the pizza, and you're stuffing it in. And you're like, oh my god, the pizza's so good. And, you know, it's New York. And uh, so we're eating the pizza. We finished off the bagels. We're eating the mozzarella. And Uncle Happy's chabbering away. And, and then cousin, cousin uh, uh, I think it was Anthony. Cousin Anthony walks in, and he's got the you know, shirts open. He's got some gold chains. He's like, ah, oh, you're the kid from Alaska. Hey, how you doing? I'm like, how you doing? And then it's like, how you's doing? And start adding the S's on the D, you know, on the end of the words. And use is use and not you. And uh, you're, again, you're still eating. But meanwhile, Aunt Angie's, Aunt Angie's over here cooking. And I smell this stuff cooking. And she's rolling meatballs in the garlic salt. And she's rolling them out. And she's putting them in the olive oil with some pepper. And they're cooking away. And you're smelling it like, oh, man, that smells good. And then she throws the Italian sausages. And she's cooking those. And she's like, hey, Chris, you want some meatballs? And I'm like, why not? You know, I'm in New York. So I started eating the meatballs, you know, and, and I'm like, oh, my God, these meatballs are so good. And, you know, you're getting a little full. 
And so she cooks the meatballs and the sausage, and she pulls them out, and then she starts the sauce, the pasta sauce, or as they call it in New York, gravy. And so they start the sauce, and she's got the garlic and the olive oil in a big pot, and uh, uh, she adds some tomato paste, and then she, she adds a bunch of uh, canned tomatoes, and that's cooking, and then she has a bottle or two of wine into it, and then the sausages and the meatballs go back in. Meanwhile, her husband comes home, Uncle Louie, the nightclub owner. And he comes back with some fresh bread, fresh bread that he also owns a bakery, and he brought the fresh bread back. And so now we're cutting the bread, because, like, you're in New York, and they've made you an offer, and you can't refuse. <laughs> so we're eating the bread, and, you know, you're dipping in the sauce, and you're pulling meatballs out now that are cooked and with sauce, and you're eating that down. Meanwhile, the pizza's gone, and somebody else is showing up with, with salami, like fresh salami, from some meat cutter down in somebody's alley. So you're eating that, and you're like, oh my god, this is the best salami. And so we're eating that, meatballs, and you pull out a sausage, you're eating that. And at one point, I, I, I remember like undoing the buttons of my pants. <laughs> I've been eating for five hours. <laughs> Steady. And so I turn to Lisa, and I say, uh, are we going to leave here anytime soon? And she goes, what are you talking about? It's time for dinner. Now I'm making this up. <laughs> so we sit down to dinner, and meanwhile, everybody's shown up. Uncle Louie's partners show up, Mel and Sal, and they're like, how you doing? I'm like, how you doing? How you doing? I'm doing good. You know, you're good. So we're talking and sharing. They're like, from, you're from Alaska. I'm like, hey, do you have penguins? And I'm like, no, we don't have any penguins. And yeah, they're igloos way up north. Maybe, I don't know, you know. I live in Alaska. We have forests and trees and fish and... So we sit down, and we're eating dinner, and of course I'm the guest. So next thing I know, there's this big pile of rigatoni on a plate, and they're handing it to me. And meanwhile, the gravy bowl is going around, which is the pasta sauce. It's going around, and you gotta put the gravy on. So they're dumping the gravy on there. And then the, the, the sausages and the meatballs come over, and I'm, they're like, hey, have a, few me have a few meatballs. And I'm like, I already had like 15. <laughs> so I'm eating meatballs, and I'm adding sausages, and I'm like, yeah, okay. We throw some ricotta on top of that, and you throw some Parmesan on top of that, and you got this massive pile of pasta, and you're eating it happily. You're grinning from ear to ear, like, oh yeah, this is great. So you're we're eating, and then, then the questions really start happening. And they're like, so since you're gonna be in New York, and I'm like, what? Since you're gonna be in New York, you need a job. And they're like, maybe, maybe you could work for Uncle Louie, delivering bread. And I'm thinking, what? Delivering bread? And, you know, I speak Spanish now. What, what? Well, if you don't like delivering bread, you could do deliver other things. I'm like, delivering other things? What are we talking about here? And then Mel or somebody is like, well, you know, you know, once you deliver bread, then you can, you know, run the business a little bit. And we go down to the Carolinas, and we sometimes got to take care of business. And I'm like, I came here for the food. I thought, first was the girl, but... It's an offer you can't refuse. <laughs> and then they go on a little bit. Well, you know, sometimes you got to do some th things that, you know, if, if you don't have the stomach for it, you don't have the stomach for it. I'm thinking, don't have the stomach for it? What? Meanwhile, I'm just gladly eating the pasta. I'm hoping that we can talk about penguins here again, again in a minute. Anyhow, to make a long story short, I came back to Alaska. <laughs> I'd said no to the offer that you can't refuse. But I did come back with the sauce.
Our next speaker is Ken Alper. Ken was raised in New Jersey, which his, he has always said is a great place to be from. He ca first came to Juneau as a graduate student in urban planning in 1991 and fell in love with the capital city in, in part because of how much it reminded him of Trenton. He and his wife, Jill Rammel, bought the Silver Bowl Inn and built the Silver Bowl Bagel Bakery in 1997, bringing New York bagels to Juneau. Ken soon left active involvement with the business, working many years for the legislature, leading him to being appointed tax division director at the Department of Revenue by Governor Walker in 2014. Please help welcome Ken to the stage. I used to have the biggest kitchen in downtown Juneau. I bet if I asked around the room, there's a few people here that probably worked for Silverbow Bakery at one time or another, or maybe even the Purity Bakery years before that. You know, there's a certain almost historic responsibility to having the oldest bakery in the state. Gus Messerschmidt actually started in 1902 in that building. Some of you might remember Gus's last surviving child, a woman named Catherine Shaw. She was born in that building in 1909. And when we had her 100th birthday party there, uh, it was one of those great moments of continuity that I'll never quite be able to forget. Gus, meanwhile, he died in 1938. And many people think that he was actually the house ghost for many, many years. We did get rid of him, but that is a whole separate story that I will tell at another time, maybe. I'm also not going to tell the story of the baker who had two babies with two different restaurant servers because I can't confirm that any of that happened in the kitchen. Um, <laughs> So I really wasn't sure what story I was going to t tell today until just a few weeks ago. I was in Anchorage at a co-worker's house for dinner, and his wife, who's foreign and she's never been to Juneau, she asks me, perfectly innocent, do you have any special traditions for Thanksgiving? Now right away I flashed up sitting in the back seat driving to Aunt Ra's and Uncle Sam's house on Long Island, and the amazing pineapple they always had because Uncle Sam was the fruit buyer for Waldbaum's. But that's not what she was asking. She was asking about my family, my wife and kids, because I'm, you know, an adult. But, but <laughs> Jill and I never had a normal Thanksgiving, really, because of Silverbow. One of the first things we learned in 97, after we'd leveraged everything and bought the building and built the bakery, was just how badly business drops off in Juneau in the fall. Jill had this brilliant idea. Let's use the big bagel oven and put a bunch of turkeys in there, and then we'll sell complete Thanksgiving meals to go. And it worked. And the next thing you know, we were making big vats of stuffing and yams and cranberry sauce. I think we sold eight of them the first year, and it grew from there. And then, really, the natural capacity of this project is the physical ability to put turkeys in the bagel oven, which is 48. Once you're there, it's all about timing. You have to make sure they're all done at the exact same time, ideally 12, 12.30, get them out, and then you get all the side dishes in there, the potatoes and all, so they're ready at 2 o'clock exactly when the customers are showing up to pick up their food. Easy, seamless, right? In the early years, I used to work a bunch in the bakery, and I would do these crazy 14-hour shifts because I would bake, and then I'd be developing recipes, doing special projects, whatever. Thanksgiving was sort of the same way. You know, my role, I'd zone in front of the, the bakery oven, dealing with the bakery stuff. Jill and her crew would be running around taking care of basically everything else, the side dishes, the salads, the, the packaging material, the logistics, the just getting everything ready. Uh, but meanwhile, there'd be the football going on on the big screen TV, we'd be drinking Irish coffee, of course, you know, it's a holiday, you can't not be doing that. And then the whole morning was about basting, 
Right. So my father used to tell this story about the guy whose job it was to paint the George Washington Bridge. Now, in the story, anyway, it took him seven years to go from end to end, painting the George Washington Bridge. Then by the time he was done, it'd be time to go back to the beginning and start all over again. Well, that's kind of what it's like when you're dealing with a large number of turkeys. <laughs> Except the painter isn't scalding himself on eight-quart buckets of boiling turkey drippings. <laughs> but uh, the greatest discovery we made a few years in was that they have these bags where you could put the turkey in the bag and it kind of self-based itself, uh, at least for most of it. Then you could take it out of the bag just for the last hour or so and it will brown. Um, so once we got there, we had developed a little bit of efficiency. And once we had a little bit of efficiency, we could almost have some fun. Like uh, one year, I used mini M&Ms and I tried to make the Obama Hope poster on a pecan pie. <laughs> now that was an artistic failure. But it tasted pretty good. And, and then I started to make these big vats of uh, Jill's mother's traditional Jewish chopped liver. Because what else do you do with a five pounds of turkey livers, right? But uh, mainly, I would hang out in the kitchen. I'd start, I would start to commune with the kitchen. Because in the later years, I didn't really work there very much anymore. And when I had the opportunity, thank you, I would, uh, I would take the time to reconnect. In the later years, I would maybe bake the bagels two or three times a year when there'd be an emergency, like the baker got arrested. And <laughs> so when I had a few hours, like on Thanksgiving, I would, I would enjoy them. I would make the most of them. I, I would talk to the sourdough. The sourdough starter was 100 years old. It was a, an Alaskan artifact, a, a, a living culture. And I would make sure it was doing okay. I know the baker's mistreating it. And if they were, I'd be nice to it. I'd give it a little honey. I'd apologize. It was, ridiculous, right? The uh, most interesting part was when the people showed up for the food. It was crazy. Now, we had these del delivery trays, these plastic trays the Cisco guy would leave there and never pick up. And it's kind of like with lighters and pens. You know, there's winners and losers. And we were big winners of the plastic delivery trays. And we would have the name and the, the, the receipt on it. The people would come to pick it up, but we couldn't let them just grab them and go because you had to stand there and count and make sure you have all 12 pieces right down to the croutons because inevitably someone's going to leave, get home, not have their potatoes, and then they call and they're all mad, and you have to apologize and wait around and they pick it up again, um, and it kind of delays the whole thing. But finally, all the food is gone, and you get to kind of sigh and take a, take a moment of relaxation, stand outside and take a breath. And that actually is my favorite part of it, and the only part that I miss about quitting smoking is that moment right there. <laughs> Finally, we take a shower, maybe get a meal ourselves, hopefully before we crashed in a heap. And that was it. Now, we don't do this anymore because we sold the bakery a year ago, October. Uh, we've just had our second normal American Thanksgiving. Making one turkey is easy and, uh, and still fun, and it's getting to be kind of normal. Now, there's still this amazing, gorgeous, huge kitchen right downstairs, but I never know what's cooking in there anymore. Thank you. You're listening to a recording of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event on KTOO News Juno. These stories were recorded on December 13, 2016 at the Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was, What's Cookin'? Curious? Visit mudrooms.org. We're going to continue on. Our fifth speaker for tonight is Pat McClear, right here. Pat is a Mudrooms veteran and is grateful to be able to share a story yet again. 
Many years ago, Pat had the good fortune of being in a writer's retreat with Allie McKenna at the helm. One of the prompts that Allie suggested was smells. Pat took that prompt and ran with it. What she conjured up ended up in the story you are about to hear, a story dedicated to Allie, who is very much missed. Please welcome Pat. Someone's in the kitchen with Ollie. Someone's in the kitchen, I know, oh, oh, oh. Someone's in the kitchen with Ollie. That'd be me. My mother's name was Mary Olive. At her mother's insistence, she was referred to by her middle name. As a kid, I was mortified to have a mother who was called Ollie. Now I think Olive is a lovely name, and I wish that one of the babies in the family would be so christened. Mary Olive was born in 1915, married my father, Charlie, in 1937, gave birth to my sister, Sandra, in 1938. Eighteen years later, my younger sister, Kathy, the baby, entered the scene. Eighteen years, six kids, one bathroom. The kitchen at 14 Tuff Street, where my parents lived for over 50 years, was large, with a table big enough to accommodate any and all who showed up for a meal, a cup of tea, a beer. My mother orchestrated all that made that mess hall run smoothly. She had beautiful penmanship. There was no effort needed to decipher the notes that she left in the milk box outside the back door or on the kitchen table on Saturday afternoons when the delivery man from Cushman's Bakery would arrive. Before going up for her nap, she'd compose the note and leave it on the kitchen table. Thinking myself very clever, I would write jelly roll in my best Palmer method. I loved it that that delivery guy pretended that my mother wrote it and he would add the jelly roll to the things that she was expecting. But I loved it even more that my mother never busted me for sneaking in that sweet treat. I don't recall notes for Paul, the egg man. That's because I was under the table hiding when he came in, put the eggs on the table, and then he'd announce that he was looking for a little girl to take home. Not me. <laughs> Not this one. Not this one. On Thursday afternoons, my mother would write the grocery list out on the back of an envelope, and then she would call Zito's Market. On Fridays, a man with a very red nose, would deliver the groceries, and he was always so appreciative when my father would offer him a bottle of Narragansett beer. Once, when I was in high school and knew everything, I lectured my mother on buying groceries from Zito's instead of going to one of the large grocery stores. She looked at me with Regretfully, a look that I've seen many times in my life from her, a look that said, how did I have such a stupid child? <laughs> and then she said, they fed my babies when we had no money. 
after the groceries were taken out of the boxes, put away, and the Friday night fish dishes were washed up, yes, we were Catholic, my mother would put the beans out to soak. And on Saturday mornings, before we were up, she would have boiled them, placed them in the bean pot with salt pork, molasses, onions, salt, pepper, ketchup, and bake for eight to 10 hours. Eight to 10 hours of that aroma infiltrating the entire house. This is what home smelled like. Comfort, love, hospitality. And this was not an occasional meal. Just like no meat Fridays, Saturday night, Saturday night beans was something you could count on. Baked beans, brown bread, coleslaw, and yes, hot dogs and apple pie. <laughs> and just as routine was the noon meal on Sundays when our maternal grandparents and great aunt Hannah would join us at the table. My mother would cook up whatever slice of meat that the Zito's butcher had sent, along with some, you know, veggies, potatoes, would follow it up with apple pie and Bliss Brothers ice cream, and then we'd wait for it, just as we had the night before. At the conclusion of the meal, my mother would push back her chair and declare, very good, Mary Olive. <laughs> Light years later, when I was living on the island nation of Douglas, in a duplex on St. Anne's that was routinely battered by the Takus, I was walking up from the post office with a package, a package that my sister Mary had sent and it had traveled the 4,000 miles from the Commonwealth. I opened it up, the bean pot. Tan bottom, brown top, chipped lid, older than the majority of us here this evening. So I decided I'd give it a try. I bought the beans, Red kidney beans, because that's what my mother always baked. And then next Friday night, I set them out to soak. And on Saturday morning, I boiled them up. And then when I blew on them and the skins rolled back, I knew they were done. So I added them to the bean pot with some bacon, some molasses, onion, ketchups, dried mustard, low heat oven, keep moist, eight to 10 hours. Then I went for a walk on Sandy Beach. And that afternoon when I returned, I opened that apartment door and I was overwhelmed with the smell that transported me in time and space. I closed my eyes. I felt the ache of missing family and friends who were so very far away. The void hurt and I told myself, if this is what it made me feel like, homesick, I was never going to bake beans again. <laughs> but company was coming, so, so I set the table. I, I, I baked, I warmed up the bread, I made the coleslaw, and I welcomed my guest, and we sat, and we ate, and we told stories, and we laughed, and at the conclusion of the meal, I pushed back my chair, and I declared, very good, Patricia Ann. 
and I've been baking beans ever since. Someone's in the kitchen with Ollie. Good night, Ma. Our next speaker is Marita Weed. Marita is a lifelong Alaskan who's lived in Juneau since 1998 and would like to one day consider herself local. When she isn't hard at work as an elementary school teacher, you might find her exploring the out of doors, binging Netflix, but probably not in the kitchen unless it's washing the dishes. I've been to several mudrooms, and um, this is where my elementary school teacher comes in. If you can agree with me, give me a thumbs up. Um, one of the things that I really enjoy is just listening to the stories. Now, there are stories that get shared around dining room tables, and there are stories that get shared around living rooms. And then there are stories that actually become part of the culture of a family or a group of friends. And when you smell a smell or you see a site that gets texted or emailed to a friend, hey, you know exactly what story you're talking about. Sometimes they develop catchphrases like, poop nasty. <laughs> in this case, in the story that I'm going to share with you, it also has a catchphrase. And the catchphrase is, it is a really good thing that your mother is not home. This was measured several times after what will be referred to as the event as about five gallons of water used for cleaning up was spilled in the kitchen room. Two teenage daughters, bathing suits, swimming goggles, toothbrushes, scrubbing the ceiling. <laughs> and another event I'll get to in a little bit. But it was because my mom was not home that the story actually gets to take place. She was down um, taking care of her parents, leaving two teenage daughters and her husband home alone. And my sister, my younger sister, took this opportunity to say, hey, could I cook dinner? My dad was like, yes. Find the recipe. We'll go to the store. We'll get your ingredients. We're good. So we went to cars. We came back. I remember the recipe had beef, ramen noodles, and sesame oil. And my dad obviously had faith that his daughter and daughters could handle things just fine because he went and took a shower while we started the prep. And uh, I'm going to say the royal we here because really it was all my sister. And um, I'm going to stop just this story a little bit because the rest of the story, you need to have a really good visual of um, my parents' house. My parents' house is a classic split level where you walk in and you can go up to the stair, upstairs to the kitchen and then the living room, or the, excuse me, the dining room. But our living room is recessed, meaning it's a little bit below. So you can sit in the living room and you can look up at the kitchen and see the things that are happening up there. This is kind of convenient when you're a teenage girl who doesn't really want to stand in the kitchen and watch things cook. So my sister had gotten things started, 
and was coming downstairs and occasionally she'd check, um, visually look at what was happening in the kitchen. And she got to a stage where she had to um, heat up the sesame oil. And when she was asked later, what she said was, well, I knew that water boiled at 100 degrees. And therefore, if I heat the oil up to the temperature it has to be heated, it's going to hit 100 degrees and start boiling. And we were down in the living room, and she would walk up those stairs, and she would check on the oil, and it wasn't boiling. So she'd turn up the heat, and then she'd come back downstairs. We'd do what we were doing, probably watching TV. And she'd go up, that oil is just not boiling yet, so she'd turn up the heat. She did that a couple times until that time, that fatal time, that she looked up those stairs and didn't just see the saucepan, but flames shooting out of the saucepan. And so she ran upstairs and I followed her. Now you know that cliche, time slowed down. That's what happened. As I'm following up her the stairs, mentioned in my bio that I don't cook, didn't cook. I don't know where this knowledge came from, but I could see what she was doing and knew that that's not how you put out an oil fire. <laughs> and you guys that are laughing right now are kind of predicting what's happening next. I'm about halfway up the stairs and I'm yelling, no! As my sister grabs that saucepan, puts it down in the kitchen sink, Yes. <laughs> Grabs the faucet and turns it on full bore. I take a dive at the top of the stairs down as the biggest fireball I have ever seen comes from the kitchen sink up as the silhouette of my sister's body comes back. To quote my father, who, if you remember, was in the shower. Well, I heard a big boom, some silence, and then the fire alarm went off. And I thought to myself, I should check on those girls. I should also interject here, he must have had complete faith in our abilities because he was not the first adult on the scene. <laughs> the neighbor. We had an acre lot. <laughs> the neighbor walked through the woods around our deck and knocked on our door to make sure that we were okay. So this event also has the second time in my life that I've ever seen my father in his bathrobe. So if you can imagine when he did finally make it on the scene looking out over us, two girls, my sister was fine by the way, not even a drop of oil. Yeah! <laughs> there was a small burn mark where the saucepan had landed. We couldn't hide that from mom. <laughs> there was also the beautifulest burn on the ceiling 
You could see where the airflow had swirled and quirled and come down, which we tried. Remember scraping the ceiling with a toothbrush? Didn't come off. So in our story, what's cooking? Memories. All right, so our last speaker for the evening is Mark Wheeler. Mark is a former park ranger, trail builder, conservation organizer, deputy mayor, consultant, nonprofit director, researcher, and Mudroom Storyboard member. Yes, you guessed it, he was an English major. Mark now owns a local ice cream and coffee shop with his wife, Jessica Paris, further confirming his college major and tries not to embarrass his children, Celia and Ferguson, too much. Mark is proud to call Juno home since 1995. Please welcome Mark. Ice cream is my jam. If I was an artist, cream and milk and sugar would be my palate. You can do anything with ice cream. I'm not gonna bore you with tales of ice creams that I made like Herring Row ice cream or Caramelized onion, which is actually Oral Landau's favorite ice cream. But I'm going to talk about our little family business and what it means to me today. It was May 2013. I was going through a traumatic layoff. I was losing my 12-year career with Big Brothers Big Sisters, all because a Texan with a too-large ego was moving my job to Irving with a lot of other jobs. I was lost and confused, and I was really hurt. And then my friend Clint says, hey, did you hear the song Sushi Building is getting renovated and the landlord wants to put in a coffee shop? Boom. That's what I was going to do next. I just knew it in my bones. I was going to run a coffee shop and we'd make ice cream because I like to make ice cream. I actually started making rhubarb sherbet commercially right there in that kitchen. And Judy Knight uh, put up with me and my dirty dishes. So I had this idea and Jessica just happened to be on her first sea kayaking trip in a decade. So my idea had plenty of room and time to take root and grow. And when she got back from Sea Working Now, I started my relentless lobbying campaign. Wasn't it gonna be great? Just think how much money we're gonna make off those $4 mochas. <laughs> After 20 years in nonprofit work, I was ready to make some money. But she was smarter than that. She saw through the mirage of easy money through coffee. But I was persistent and I gradually wore her down. September 2013, four months later, Building plans were done, electrical work installed, plumbing installed, equipment purchased, two baristas hired. We opened in September 2013, four months later, and I was not of sound mind. <laughs> really, I had the prescription to prove it. <laughs> anyway, and it was going to be great. I hadn't taken any barista training, all the ice cream making I knew from cookbooks, but it was going to be perfect, right? Thankfully, we had people like Chris Knight who came every day and put up with my bad espresso shots and my too cold milk foam because he wanted to see us succeed. We had two great baristas. We first hired Katie and Nikki, and they had a magic touch with the customers. Nancy Hemingway. Nancy spent hours and hours testing recipes and came up with our, our baked goods and our bakery, and I didn't want to have a bakery. <laughs> but Nancy made it happen. And we had friends like 
Barbara Craver, who came every day too, because they wanted us to succeed. But then winter rolled around, I started to lose employees, and I was working 60 or 70 hours a week on my feet, and I was worried. I'd blown through my severance. I didn't know if we were going to make it. We'd have to make it off of what little the business would produce in Jessica's salary, and thank God for her health insurance. I got irritable, and I was not much fun to be around. But then gradually, it took shape. And my management style of just making it up as, as I go along didn't run us out of business. We hired some great kitchen staff, and Carrie and Isaac really fleshed out our menu and made us consistent and solid in the kitchen. And thanks to a grant I won, I even got to go to barista class. And we sent India off to barista camp, so our coffee got much, much better. And then, last year, I think it was in May, a young man wrapped himself in the Confederate flag, went to a church in Charleston, South Carolina, and murdered nine innocent people. And I remember being in this church a week later and imagining what that would have been like if that would have happened here. So I felt I had to do something, and it always bothered me to see the Mississippi flag on Egan Drive with its symbol of institutional racism. But I knew others felt the same way, so we got together at COPA, and we organized. And I realized then that COPA could be a meeting place and a place to organize for the community. We worked hard, and we prevailed, thanks to support from 300 community leaders, our entire junior legislative delegation, and the Friends of the Flags agreed and took the flag down. I think I saw Jim Carroll tonight. Thank you, Jim. But along the way, I got singled out. It was my picture on the front page and the back page. And people came after me. They came after COPA. I didn't know what an internet troll was before this happened, but they struck, and they struck hard. They threatened to boycott our business. They wrote nasty reviews on social media, threatening our rankings. They even went so far as to say they were gonna make up anti-COPA bumper stickers and paste them all around town. I really thought we were gonna get a brick thrown through our window and Jessica and I were really shaken up. But then a beautiful thing happened. Our friends and our customers rallied behind us and started posting glowing reviews on social media, drowning out all the haters. David Katzi came to our business and one quiet Saturday morning he performed a clinket ceremony and he hung a protective Devil's Club branch above our front door. And that fall, the Juno Empire did its annual survey, and we were voted best business in all of Juno. So you see, love overcomes hate. It really does. And as I've grown into the business, I've realized that this business is not just about making money. This business is an extension of myself and our family values. And we love being a place for the community to gather. We love hosting events like the Kids Open Mic Night a few, years, a few weeks ago. We have great customers. Um, last week, a man and his wife, they brought their kids to celebrate because they just adopted them in the federal courthouse. We have customers tell us their joys and their sorrows. Sometimes they break down right at the counter, and we comfort them with a hug or a smile or a free cup of coffee. And they help us back. They bring us their favorite plum cake recipe. They bring us homemade sausage. Even Dave Haas brings us his hand-picked nagoon berries every year. Last week, 
our customers in one day donated $2,000 to one of our baristas for her emergency medical fund. Now, I'm not as worried anymore about how my political views might affect the business. Well, maybe a little bit. Um, but Jessica and I were so worried and concerned about the misogyny in the media that we decided to make a nasty woman ice cream. We thought we might get some hate, but we knew our customers would enjoy it. And we could help the Aware Shelter at the same time. And it brought in many more women customers to our business. It's, it's just not all about making money. There's more things that are important. There's community. There's our youth. There's social justice. Investing in your employees, even though they're, they're gonna leave you probably in a year. <laughs> These things are what's important. And I love this town. I cherish my wife. I adore my kids. And I love myself. I love this, like my arms and my feet. I love this extension of myself, this little business called Copa. Thank you. This is KTOO News Juno 104.3 FM. The stories you just heard were recorded on December 13th, 2016. The theme for the evening was What's Cooking? To tell your story or to find out about the next live event, visit mudrooms.org. Audio production by Rich Moniak. Additional help from Alita Bus, Tom Cosgrove, Pat Roach, Steve Suing, Kristen Stouter, and Sarah Hannon. Music by Julie Copens. I'm Amanda Compton. Have a good night.